Sometimes a community is nothing more than a collective of those left standing. It was as the gray slate sky surrendered itself into absence that the community of the black sun built tall fires and gathered within the glow to hear what the impossible men had to say. They were Mr. Oakes, alive without ever having been born, and Mr. Mayhew, dead but somehow not letting that slow him down. In their audience were Cassandra and her sickle blade and all the humans who escaped the city's fall. And in the audience were Terry and all the children of the Black Sun who went as monsters, as creatures, as beasts. The fire glow made all faces blurred and indistinct. They were not a crowd in another. They were only them, the last of them left standing. The impossible men had walked through lands outside of sanity and time to stand here and say what they had to say. Well, now they stood there and did not know where to begin. So Cassandra prompted them. She said, You said I'm supposed to kill death. How do you suggest I go about doing that? The fire cracked while the smoke billowed. The survivors waited. We've seen how this began, Mr. Oakes said. Mr. Mayhew shrank back, as was Mr. Mayhew's way. We remember how it started, said an angry voice from the flicking shadow. Mr. Oakes said, I don't just mean for us. Before we can end this cycle, we have to know the first turn of the wheel. How a death god came to delight in stealing people, and then in stealing entire peoples. Only then can you know the threat we all face. Only then can you understand what must be done. So tell us, Cassandra's voice sharp as her sickle blade. Tell us. Mr. Oakes nodded to her. It began, as all stories must, with once upon a time. Once upon a time, there were people who are not like us. I suppose you would call them gods. How they came to be and how they came to inhabit their realm I do not know. Perhaps they were once like mortals, but in walking through the infinite worlds they became something different, something themselves infinite. Perhaps they sprang from imagination and story, given solidity by the faith of those who spelled them into life. And perhaps that faith was so strong that the gods outlived the worlds they lived for. Or perhaps they sprang fully formed out of the kilonaut that forged the first universe and all the universes after. Perhaps they came before the fire and before the universe. Perhaps they have always, ever been. It makes no difference to the task before us now. What matters is that once upon a time, there was a world of gods and there was a world of peace. When one of the hosts grew weary of peace, 
It became bothersome. They were exiled out into the wild worlds of mortals to rule or serve however they saw fit. Sometimes, gods would swap worlds or change their own behaviors to see how the faithful reacted. A century of kindness there, followed by millennia of cruelty, that sort of thing. Just a game. Always just a game. Back in their own world, the gods knew only tranquility. Now in this tranquil world, there lived a death god. Do not ask his true name, for that is lost to us. The day would be won in a moment if we knew his true name, and so he hides it. The death god was the most joyous of all those beings in that place. For you see, most gods know only the splendor of paradise, pain and loss and loneliness. They understand these things only as stories told by and about strangers. But the death god, he spent his first lengthy stretch of forever among the mortals. He was there as weeping mothers clutched their still and silent babes through their chest. He was there as soldiers barely older than boys many of them only boys still, were split into pieces and scattered on battlefields. He was there as true love that had lasted across decades, ended with clasped hands and a shared and final sleep. He knew the taste of sorrow as it exists on earth, on all earths, and so there was none among the gods who better savored all the sweetness offered by heaven. And perhaps he could have spent all the rest of his forevers savoring that sweetness and indulging in every infinite frivolity, a death god in title and type only. But then, had that happened, this wouldn't be a story, would it? No. For this to be a story, the original story of worlds must make an appearance. Love. Yep. The death god fell in love. With a god as unencumbered by any mortality as our death god was marked forever by it. And therein lay doom. For this god of light grew tired of the endless, ceaseless perfection of their kingdom. They wished to appreciate it with the same purity and intensity as their beloved, the death god. An idea took hold and would not let go, a way to break up the monotony of eternity and to come out the other side more complete than ever before. So this god of life and light went to the death god and asked to be killed. Of course the death god refused. It was unheard of, unprecedented, unthinkable. But the god of life and light had thought about it. 
and now they had placed the thought in his head, the death god could not stop thinking about it as well. For now that the matter had been brought to him, he had to acknowledge that there was a loneliness in his existence that he typically numbed himself from facing. He was the only of his kind to see things the way he saw them. He was the only one who knew the things he knew, and there were no words in any language with which he could bridge himself in full to some other soul. So even as he denied the God of Life and Light's requests, there was in him a voice whispering, What if? Why not? What if? The whisper grew in volume and frequency until it was all that he could hear. And there were adjoining whispers now. What was the harm? What was the risk? Didn't you want to see what would happen? Didn't the perversity of it make it that much more appealing? One day, a day like any other, he went to the god of life and light he loved and said, Yes. The god of life and love prepared the ceremony, arranged themselves into the tableau it found most pleasing. Guests were invited and watched wrapped with fascination. The death god stepped to his love and embraced them as he never had before. The light dimmed and then left, leaving behind a corpse that looked all too mortal. I imagine there might even have been applause. The death god allowed his love time to look about in the state of death and when he had judged enough time had passed, he spoke the word that would bring the god of life and light back to him. The word was spoken, but the light remained out. The body, which looked more and more indistinguishable from a mortal by the moment, did not stir. The crowd began to murmur. The death god said the word again, but still his love did not awaken. The crowd began to panic, began to scream. And the death god screamed too, screamed his useless word over and over and over again, held his beloved tight to him and screamed their name again and again and again. And no matter how he called, there was no response. Here, Cassandra interrupted with a question. Why? Mr. Mayhew stepped forward while Mr. Oakes moved back. Gods are not people in the way you all are. You are abstract shards of infinity, lodged into flesh and purified and tainted into all different shapes and sizes. When you die, that distended quality forbids you from rejoining the infinite as you truly should. This answer only raised more questions, but Mr. Mayhew barreled onward anyway. But God, you see, gods are made of the infinite. And so when one dies, all that energy returns back into the universe. It's like putting a pin into a balloon. Pop. Gone. And no one knew that before? Cassandra demanded. Mayhew shrugged. It was a unique occurrence. Gods usually only died either by a story, in which case a new telling gave them new life, 
or by being abandoned by their faithful, in which case they fade and become legends, monsters, tall tales, that sort of thing. To be killed outright, the way this one was, never happened before, and probably will never happen again. Unless, of course, we are successful. Cassandra nodded, accepting if not completely understanding. Okay, she said. So what came next? Mr. Oaks stepped forth again. Grief, of course. Grief as deep as oceans stacked on top of one another. Grief enough to drown whole galaxies. But we may move beyond that. For our story truly begins there on the other side of grief. When the madness took hold. Before the madness, first on the other side of grief, there was an anger the Death God had never felt before and did not know what to do with. For a long while, he desired to be dead as well. He sought remedies, but none could help him. And then that rage turned outwards. He looked at the kindly, the cruel, and the indifferent and hated them all. And then his rage turned outwards. He spent who knows how long wandering in the worlds of mortals and of other gods. And he looked at the kindly, the cruel, and the indifferent. And he hated them all. He hated the kindly because had not his lover been kinder than all? He hated the cruel because had not his lover been kind instead? And he hated the indifferent because they talked and slept and ate and sang and walked on roads beneath the sky while his love would never again know the sky above or the grass below. It wasn't fair. He could not exist with that unfairness. So he left. He did not know what he sought when he put his back to heaven and walked on. How far he wandered and where he went, again, I do not know. But what we do know is that his hate never faded. If anything, it calcified over him, became a kind of armor that he wore as he crossed the wastelands. And we know he did cross the wasteland. These wastelands, yes, the very ones which you now follow in the opposite direction. He pressed further and further into this strange country, swatting away any creature that disturbed him. Now it was Terry who interrupted the story. So he didn't create all the monsters and the other beings running around here? He didn't create this place? No, Mr. Oak said. To tell you the truth, Terry, 
We still don't know what this place is or how or why it came to be. The beasts here obey him as a master, but he did not create them. He sits in the sky above us, but he didn't create that sky. He claimed this world as his own, but it was not his to claim. The story continued. The Death God pressed on, perhaps as confounded by this dream country as we are. And in his travels, his long and lonely travels, he finally encountered another soul. This other soul belonged to a magician who had accidentally magicked a doorway into being. And since humans are fated to always, always be opening doors they ought not to, this magician did just that and found himself traipsing through the midnight desert beneath the gray sleet sky. We think he had been alone for a very long time when he came across the Death God. We think he must have been very afraid and very lost. He came from a time when men believed only domination could calm conflict, and from a nation that believed it had the right to command any place it entered. Believing that the Death God was just a lowly native, the magician set about bullying and browbeating his new companion. The Death God, for reasons that are beyond me, indulged this for a time, played the role of shambling, slow-witted manservant. Perhaps he found it distracting or amusing. Perhaps it pleased him to be someone other than himself. But eventually he tired of the games whatever he got out of them. So what did he do? Cassandra asked. What did he do to this magician? Mr. Oak sighed and looked away. Mr. Mayhew moved before him again. He ate him, he said. He ate his body, and then he ate his soul. It was during the night following a day when the magician had committed no new offenses when a silent alarm went off inside the death god. He went out among the wastes and came back holding a rock. He straddled the sleeping figure of his so-called master. The first blow to the head woke the magician up. The second blow made the mortal aware. The third blow cracked his skull and put an end to his cries and pleas. After that, words were beyond him. He continued to make noises of pain and protest, but the death god did not hear and did not care. He declared the magician a sacrifice and began to feed. 
And when this worship was concluded, he sat back and watched the lights and shadows that made up the intangible identity of the magician begin to gather and pull free from the meat it no longer had to bother with. The death god seized it and began again to feed. A more rapturous meal I cannot imagine. A more rapturous meal I cannot imagine. Suffice to say, the death god enjoyed the taste of both meat and of spirit. And so he began reaching out into other worlds from this one, creating doorways and waiting for someone, anyone, to fall through, whispering his name and sigils into dreams, and then sitting back to watch flies feed themselves into his web. Our city fell because of a poor fool named Joe King, who etched the death god's sign to the city's sidewalks with his endless loops. Probably, Joe should only have moved himself and maybe a block or two with his paths. But by then the death god had grown so powerful that such a pitiful opening was all he needed to reach through and pluck an entire city into his playpen here. What happened to him? Terry asked. To Joe King. He realized what he'd done and went, eh, quite mad. The death god consumed him. Whole. Why? This from Cassandra. Because, Mr. Oaks began, while he would never admit it, the Death God fears to be known. He fears that the tragedy that shaped him be common knowledge that would make him common. And he fears to have his methods known, for this might lead to understanding him. And if you can understand him, you can kill him. Pop the balloon, you could say. Do you say? Cassandra challenged. You're saying you've got a needle strong enough to do the trick? Yes, said Mr. Oaks. In fact, he whispered it into being, such was his hunger and his lust for destruction. A murmur rippled through the crowd. I'm speaking, of course, Mr. Oaks said, about the plane. The plane. The plane. That evil fucking plane. Brought to life by Betsy Overby's favorite puppet, the young man Kyle. Strange Kyle. Brilliant Kyle. Quite insane Kyle. The plane that, after been built, had poured fiery death onto the outliers. At the mention of it, in the memory of it, the camp began to jitter, old hurts newly aching. Cassandra stood among the din and said, Enough. None of that matters. The people responsible are dead. The people we lost, they can't be helped. So put all that shit you're feeling and all that hate away. Put it away until it can be useful again. She raised the sickle blade and every last grumble and murmur silenced. Despite her words, there was anger in her eyes, and her hate was very, very clear. What about the plane? she demanded. It's out here in the desert, Oakes said. The journey is arduous, Ahu added. 
but possible. Oaks added to the addition, you will make it. This, he said to Cassandra. And do what with it? She asked. What planes are meant to do, Mayhew said. Fly. And where, Cassandra went on, am I flying? Both men pointed up. You will fly right into his eye, Oak said. With that sickle blade in hand, Mayhew added, And then we will live to see a death god die, Mr. Oaks concluded. It was as the gray slate sky began to brighten with weird light that the community of the black sun stood by the bones of faded fires to hear the impossible men outline an impossible plan. Sometimes a community is nothing more than a collective of those left standing. Sometimes hope is a last desperate act when all other plans have failed and all other chances have been lost. So they listened to the impossible plan and tried to believe that it could be so. Every night must end. Wasn't that what stories promised? Wasn't that the guarantee you took on trust when you sat down to listen? There was nothing else for it but to hold on to this last belief that this time, this last once upon a time, they would at last be delivered.